0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: I'd like to acknowledge this program is made on Woiwurrung country. I pay my respects to Wurundjeri and all First Nations Elders, past, present and future.
2: Encourage First Nations people to step into the enormous amount of power that they have to bring tens of thousands of years of knowledge into those spaces that your contribution is incredibly unique and if our governance spaces and our management spaces are not creating room and not just that but valuing the people who bring that knowledge with them then we are all missing out our organizations are missing out our governments are missing out our businesses are missing out
0: From an Aboriginal perspective, we don't exist as individuals. We Mm. exist as part of a collective. So you get into the boardroom on that and you bring that mindset. You start to talk about our organisation doesn't exist for its own sake, Mm. exists for a broader reason. What is the contribution we are making to the wider society we live in?
1: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and on This Working Life, we're looking at what it means to create a seat at the table for First Nations people in your company.
0: My name is Ian Ham, and I'm a non-executive director, among other things, for a living these days. Uh,
1: how many boards are you actually on, <laughs> Ian? Can you even count them?
0: Too many. Uh, I'm on 15.
1: <gasps> 15 boards?
0: 15 boards.
1: Right. It's amazing that you've had time to come here and have a conversation.
0: <laughs> well, before this started, I did get a text about one of them today, which I've got to do just some stuff, you know, want to be on top of. Um, yeah, it is too many. But when you made when I made the crossover for this, you kind of take what you can get. And yeah, and I guess with COVID, it's easy to say yes to stuff because you don't actually have to go anywhere. So yeah.
1: Now, for the last few years, you've been really focusing on improving representation of Aboriginal people on mm. boards through advocacy and mentoring. Why?
0: Well, look, one of the things which really struck me, so before I decided to do this, I was a, I was a public servant, an executive public servant uh, for the Victorian and the Commonwealth governments, mostly in Aboriginal affairs, but not always. But one thing that I routinely saw was the pigeonholing of Aboriginal people into some narrow streams, and Aboriginal affairs being the biggest of those narrow streams. But there was really, what I discovered was this real conceptual roadblock for a lot of people that Aboriginal people can only do Aboriginal affairs. And that's even true within the Aboriginal community. And, and it really it really not only struck me, it annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> it was actually in 2000 was the first time I actually went on a board. And that was to do with football, which, which was interesting because a lot of people struggled with the concept that an Aboriginal person involved in football wasn't in the playing of the game, <laughs> but in the administration of the game. And this wasn't a club, this was a league. It struck me then that what a lot of people didn't guess was that I was Aboriginal and president of a football league and a big one at that. And I guess I used that as a bit of a, what was a learning ground about what is being a non-executive director about. But I also got that first thing of, why do people think I'm only capable of certain things because I'm Aboriginal? Or don't people think I can do things other than Aboriginal stuff?
1: How do you avoid being pigeonholed so that you're only there as a voice for that view? Um,
0: (laughs) With me, it's because I don't shut up. So there's that. Um, No, I I guess that when you go onto a board, you're you're not an Aboriginal director. This is when I was in the public service. I used to drive me crazy when people call me an Aboriginal public servant. Well, I wasn't. That implies there's a separate Aboriginal public service, which there's not. There's the public service. And I just happen to be a public servant. I'm Aboriginal. I go onto board. I'm a walking, talking, gum-chewing, shoelace-tying director. And I happen to be Aboriginal. I bring a certain perspective, my life experience, my work experience to the board, but I also bring the unique characteristics of me, which every director does. And to be an effective director, you have to—you owe it to the company and your fellow board members to not just be a one-trick pony. You have to have skin in the game on everything. It doesn't mean you have to be across everything in detail because no director is. And you've got to work on your strengths. What am I good at? What am I not good at? That's why boards have five, seven, nine people on them or in the case of some of the big community organisation ones, 14 or 16. People bring different skills. So work out what am I good at? And that's my contribution to the board. And when an Aboriginal, you know, for example, we're doing a rap, I can speak about that, but I'm not going to own it. But I can obviously provide a lot of support to it.
1: Ian, what are you good at?
0: Uh, now, see, this is a hard one. <laughs> what am I good at? Look, I'd have to say my strength is around strategy, it is around really long term visioning. That's what I do. Now, people might say, oh, that's a bit airy fairy, that's not really. Actually, it's something I think as Australia, particularly in our governance of, of everywhere, does not get enough attention to it. In fact, it's easy and it's comfortable and it's lazy to go to the here now and look at the problems we need to focus on. Of course you do that. But that's if, if that's the only thing you do, then you're really not serving your organisation or the people in that organisation or the people that organisation exists for properly. Because you have to think about if we just sit here and spin our wheels or all we do is stop situations getting worse, then what's the point? So what I talk about is, so where do we want to be in 10 years? Where do we want to be in 20 years? What might the world look like? This goes back to when I was in government in Aboriginal affairs. Me and others drove an agenda to stop everyone thinking of Aboriginal people as a series of siloed, disconnected problems that needed to be fixed, and fixed meant not getting worse, to thinking of this as a, in a generation. What do we want, in now my case, Aboriginal Victoria to look like in a generation? And think of us not as this series of problems, but a people whose potential had yet to be realised. All we lacked is the opportunity. And you take that into a boardroom. What is our organisation about? Well, we're about doing this or about selling these widgets. Yes, that, yes, that's fine. But what do we look like in a generation? Where's the world going? What's our place in it? What do we contribute to that between what we consciously and active do, actively do every day and what's the wider remit that we should pick up to add value to the society that we live in? That's what I do.
1: And you may have already answered this, but um, explicitly, what would you say is the power of having First Nations people on our boards? I,
0: look, I think that I think Lisa, the big power is our is the conceptual framework with which black fellows come from. So, um, th- the best example I can give is around is is understanding the role of an organisation's place in the wider community. Organisations don't exist for their own sake. They exist because they make a contribution to something. Whether they're private, public, or, you know, not-for-profit, they exist to make a contribution. Now, I actually think a lot of directors, or a lot of non-Aboriginal people, find that hard to conceptualise. The purpose of their company, for example, is to sell their product, maximise profit, distribution to shareholders which is perfectly valid, but that bit about understanding you have an obligation to the broader society you live in and not just in the um, community programs you Mm. run but substantially everything you do every day. From an Aboriginal perspective, we don't exist as individuals, we Mm. exist as part of a collective. So you get into the boardroom on that and you bring that mindset, you start to talk about our organisation doesn't exist for its own sake, Mm. exists for a broader reason. What is the contribution we are making to the wider society we live in? You get that in the boardroom, you start that discussion, you can actually conceptually change how a board thinks about its role and its organisations and that filters through to the purpose of an organisation Um, and transforms it for the better. I mean, that's what I say. I I did this at the AICD a couple of years ago at their conference. I was on the panel about diversity and inclusion, and I got asked a question about why should boards, you know, bring Aboriginal people, seek Aboriginal people on boards. And I said, quite frankly, because you need us. So let me be clear. Getting an Aboriginal person onto your board is not doing us a favour. We're the ones doing you a favour. And that's true of any other minority or any other people where there's not – people who aren't classically represented in those higher echelons of power because they bring something you don't have, the perspectives, the life experience, the conceptual understanding, which, quite frankly, a lot of decision-making groupings lack. And so that's what they bring. So you don't view them as a minority that we're doing a favour by having something and, – and, in fact, we've numbed down our board a bit to give this person a go. No, no. What you've done is actually enhance the capacity, capability, and general effectiveness of your board by bringing somebody in from a sector that's different. Often, Lisa, the way I describe it is that boards talk about having a line of sight. Now, a line of sight is a very narrow, thin thing. Now, if everybody's in your, in your boardroom, uh, they may be male or female, but if they all live in Turak and went to St. Kevin's or St. Catherine's, then there's not much difference, if you know what I mean. So so you don't have a, a – board should not – should be constructed so it doesn't have a line of sight. A board should be constructed so it has oversight, like a big oversight. Now, that comes from a whole bunch of different perspectives, a whole bunch of different life experiences that comes from people's backgrounds, their lives and stuff.
1: We'll go meta for a second. How um, far have we come in terms of First Nations representation on boards?
0: Um, yeah, well, you know, I think we're in the stages of growing that. So certainly in the not-for-profit sector, most Aboriginal participation at governance level is on ab- boards of Aboriginal organisations, but we're increasingly seeing Aboriginal people on the broader not-for-profit sector boards. Government itself has also committed to and is appointing Aboriginal people to public purpose boards. So, for example, I sit on the board of Yarra Valley Water and Homes Glen TAFE, now I don't have a background in water or TAFE education, but I know about big organisations. I have a, I'm just one of those people who's got an inquiring mind, so I'm learning all the time about water or the water system and the TAFE system in particular and how it, it it forms an intrinsic part of our whole economy. So government's doing that. It's in the private sector that I think is the private sector and the larger not-for-profit sector. I think is where there needs to be further work.
1: When the new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, took to the stage on election night, his first words were about the Uluru Statement from the Heart and having better Indigenous representation in Mm. lawmaking. How significant is it having those voices and perspectives of First Nations people foregrounded Uh, like that?
0: Yeah, it's huge. It, it, It makes... It means we're in the camp. It means we're inside the tent. So the voice goes beyond just being advocacy, to being now a voice in decision-making, making decisions on issues, not just about Aboriginal things, but bringing the lens of Aboriginality to other decision-making, which is really important, which goes back to my original point, why am I on, excuse me, so many boards, to bring the Aboriginal perspective to other decision-making, to bring that into the room, uh, to quite frankly imbue Aboriginal culture into a group of people who are not Aboriginal to help them make better decisions.
2: My name is Carla McGrath. I am a proud Torres Strait Islander woman, uh, born and mostly raised in Sydney and now living here on Kondamooka country in Minjiraba, or as a lot of people know it, North Stradbroke Island. Uh, I run my own consulting business, so I'm the lead consultant at Carla McGrath Consulting. Carla, for over a decade, you've chaired and
1: sat on numerous boards and committees as well as started up your own consultancy business. Now, no doubt you've broken many glass ceilings. Tell me about your experience and the breaking of glass walls and ceilings by First Nations women and what they can bring to the workforce and to governance.
2: Oh, the breaking of them can be exhausting. <laughs> and I, I think back to my experiences, particularly when I was first starting out in those sorts of roles myself and I can, you know, I can speak to my own experience, speak to the experiences that I've heard from other First Nations women in particular, um, but obviously can't speak for everybody. But I think back to to when I first started stepping into those sorts of roles and I was in an incredibly frustrated place, to be honest with you. And I had a, I had a number of Fantastic mentors at the time, um, particularly women, particularly women in business um, and in governance spaces, black and white women. And I remember going to a couple of really trusted ones and saying, I need some help with how I'm bringing myself to these spaces because I'm just not being taken seriously. You know, I walk in and, you know, at that time as a relatively young black woman inhabiting at times spaces with a lot of old white men, I was more often than not seen as either a diversity pick or, you know, I think I used to describe it, <laughs> I described it to a few people as I walk into these spaces and they see me as the girl who's there to get the coffee and I have to explain to them that I'm not, I'm there to facilitate or chair the meeting. And that's an instant reaction or assumption that becomes quite exhausting to to work against consistently and i know that that's an experience that a lot of black women have have shared in these spaces i think there's also an element to to the idea of diversity on boards and in man, in management spaces that has to acknowledge that there is absolutely and there should be a push for more women in those spaces. But if the push for more women in those spaces doesn't also include, make space for, and at times preference, a push for First Nations women in those spaces, then we are missing a significant opportunity. I don't say lightly that we have as a a nation the most unique of features that we have amongst us, the oldest continuing cultures on the planet. And if our governance spaces and our management spaces are not creating room, intentionally creating room, and not just that but valuing the people who bring that knowledge with them, then we are all missing out. Our organisations are missing out our governments are missing out, our businesses are missing out, if we don't make space for and value the knowledge that those people bring to those spaces and particularly our women.
1: And what barriers do First Nations people continue to come up against when entering the boardrooms? Uh, are there any myths that you'd like to challenge?
2: Uh, there's probably one major one that I come across a lot and that is, is this question or consideration of capacity. You know, I think a lot of the time when we think about historically Western spaces, like boards, we take into consideration when we're recruiting for those spaces a quite narrow version of what skill and experience is required to sit in those spaces. And it's narrow because it really only considers the Western valued skills and experience that are required to sit in those spaces. But really, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been doing governance for tens of thousands of years. You know, the idea that we lack capability in those spaces is is a falsehood. I am still every day unlearning the um, really detrimental lessons that society sought to teach me about who I am and what I'm capable of as a black woman. I am I challenge that every day for myself still. What's your advice to anyone who wants to diversify their board? I think my first piece of advice is to ask yourself why. Why is it? that you're looking to make that change. I think across my work I find myself often saying that a lot of things have been done in the name of good intentions, Uh, but if we don't question and analyse those intentions, some of those intentions have quite dire consequences. So I would really encourage boards to think about why they want First Nations representation on their board. What is it that they're hoping to achieve? And also, what kind of environment are you therefore bringing uh, First Nations people into? Are you bringing them into an environment where you're saying they're just there as a regular board director, but really you're expecting this whole other level of, of work from them by virtue of who they are? And if so... You need to be really upfront and honest with yourselves about that. Uh, I think that that often is the way <laughs> and sometimes, you know, boards don't recognise that that's, that that's what they're doing. Are you seeking to bring somebody in because you feel like in the work that you do you need some sense of legitimacy in your governance uh, and having a First Nations person sitting on your board will give you that legitimacy? Well, you know, it's probably worth asking yourselves what real legitimacy is and, and what, you know, living your true values actually looks like because one person can't, can't give you that and shouldn't be, I guess, for want of a better term, used as a black shield. Uh, really, the whole organisation and, and the whole board need to be taking, taking that work on and looking at where across the breadth of the work of the organisation changes can be made to live those values differently. So I think, yeah, there's there's some really core core questions that boards should ask themselves about why before they even look to, to bring on a First Nations person. And aside from bringing in more First Nations voices to the boardroom, what else can companies and organisations do? There are so many things that organisations can do. And I think my first bit of advice always is to figure out the why for the whole organisation and what makes the most sense specifically for your organisation at this point in time. You know, you do, when you're just starting out on on these journeys of, you know, creating uh, opportunities for your organisation to work better with and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities, there is a, a really important balance to strike between getting off the ground and I guess getting some wins and some motivation amongst your people to to engage in this space and ensuring that that is not so surface level that it could be considered or in fact actually be a little bit tokenistic. So finding what this work means for your organisation and bringing that into the core of your work I think is the first way that organisations should think about what they do with and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in their their workplaces and in their work more broadly. There are a a whole range of of frameworks that are available to help organisations think about and start to take action. I know that reconciliation action plans are really useful for some organisations. Other organisations find that engagement strategies are very useful. Other organisations create their own sort of framework. Um, But ensuring within those that there is a really true sense or a really solid sense of why your organisation thinks this work is important, why it values this work, how it values this work and how that value shows up in its core business, um, we'll make sure that you start on the right on the right track.
1: These kinds of structural changes, whether that's in the boardroom or through frameworks such as the reconciliation action plans, they involve shift in power. Can you talk about that
2: concept and how companies can work through that? I would encourage and challenge people, individuals and organisations, to reframe what that. Sharing of power means to shift away from thinking and believing and experiencing that as loss for some and think of it rather as a gain for everybody. I've been through that experience with some people, both in board positions and other management positions, where that journey of Getting from a point of this feels uncomfortable and it feels very different, and I don't really know what to do about that, so I'm just going to kind of rail against it a bit because I'm not quite sure that it's in my best interests because I feel like I'm losing. Through to seeding that power, sharing that power, and figuring out for themselves or experiencing from for themselves the enormous amount of individual and organisational benefit that comes from the experience and the knowledge and the skill and the perspective that you are bringing in to the core of how your organisation works and how your organisation makes decisions and how your organisation moves through the world to do its work.
1: Carla McGrath, consultant and current chair of Get Up and Black Dance. And head to This Working Life's program page for sample First Nations engagement frameworks and resources. Next time, how an adult ADHD diagnosis can open up career opportunities. I absolutely 100% believe that all employers should see it as a strength because if the employer is putting into place those strategies and working to bring out the best in in their employee, it is a strength and can be utilised to achieve really great things. So I think it's sort of the onus is on employers to start showing that not only do they accept Someone with ADHD, but they actually, you know, really respect that and and acknowledge the strengths in that. This Working Life is produced by Rachel Bongiorno. I'm Lisa Leong. And until then, love your work.
2: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.